Suncast is brought to you by SunGrow, providing clean power for all. Suncast is also brought to you by Trina Solar. Hey there, Solar Warriors. I'm Nico Johnson, and this is Suncast. Each week, I pull back the veil on the life and business insights of clean tech entrepreneurs building the most noble and impactful companies of our time. I hope what you learn from this conversation is a catalyst for your own growth. So thanks for tuning in and welcome to our tribe. Hey, welcome to a new week, Solar Warrior. Here we go. This is Two for Tuesday. Whether that's a tactical Tuesday or just content from one of our many live events like SPI Podcast Lounge, this is going to be a short form conversation typically with subject matter experts designed to give you the practical tools, tips and advice for building your solar business or career and grow with us here on Suncast as I know you will. I'm so glad that you've decided to join us again and level up your game. Remember, you can always find the resources and learn more about today's guests and recommendations in the blog at mysuncast.com. So get ready to tune up your skills, Solar Warrior. Here we go with another powerful conversation on Suncast. We have a doozy for you. We've got an esteemed panel, folks that uh, I look to as leaders in the the national and international discussion around how energy storage is providing uh, expansive opportunity, not just for uh, clean energy, but for distribution models uh, writ large for utilities and uh, for commercial users. So I wanted to take a look today at several different uh, angles for that. Uh, we're going to bring in in just a moment uh, Jacqueline DeRosa from Amoresco, Omid Bakube from Yata Energy, Merrick Kubik from Fluence, and Zach Ward from SunGrow. You know, from residential to large-scale utility projects, energy storage and predominantly in the form of batteries is leapfrogging other applications for finally providing firm and transactive power to the grid from renewables. We're going to explore today how developers are using storage as a force multiplier and where we can expect to see further business model innovation. As we do that, I'm going to go ahead and bring in our first guest, Jacqueline DeRosa. Hi, Jacqueline. Well, hello, Nico. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. Pleasure to have you here as well. Jacqueline, you are the VP of uh, Energy Storage for Amoresco. Could you give us a quick uh, introduction to the work that Amoresco is doing to integrate uh, energy storage? Sure. And I'll, I'll tell you a little bit about Amoresco, too, and why they're in a very successful position in the energy storage space. So Amoresco um, has been around for about 20 years, publicly traded company, and started out as an ESCO, an energy efficiency company, and has really leveraged that platform to bring in other types of expertise and develop additional types of renewable generation, and now is a leader in the energy storage space. We are very active in the distributed energy storage arena, so we work with all types of customers, um, both public and private. And as a result um, of some of our federal government experience, we've done some very complex microgrids. And now we're leveraging those types of um, intricate solutions into the you know, smaller scale, into both public and private arena. And all of them involve energy storage providing multiple use applications. So it's a really neat place to work and a great space to be in. So thank you again for including me with the um, Suncast Clean Energy Summit. It's, a, it's really great to talk about this stuff. 
Indeed, and it's uh, and it's fascinating to have you all here. So I'm going to go from talk about applications at the microgrid and uh, and DG level from an integrator's perspective, as well as manufacturing. We've got two manufacturers of uh, storage technology, and then we'll talk as well uh, with Merrick from Fluence about uh, what's happening at the utility level. What are driving the energy storage models, not here to Matthew S, but around the world? So uh, I want to bring up. Omid from Yada Energy next. Omid, welcome. Hi, Nico. Thanks for having us. Great to see you, Ben. You Thanks. guys won the Solar Power International or North America Smart Energy Week Startup of the Year. Can you give us a quick, maybe one to two minute intro of why uh, you might be considered the Startup of the Year? What you guys are working on that is paradigm shifting and, uh, and a little bit about what, uh, how Yada uh, is working in the world. Uh, Yada is an energy storage company, and our mission is to simplify the deployment of energy storage. We learned very quickly that in order for storage to get really scalable and into the built environment, specifically for behind-the-meter applications, we had to drive for simplicity. And what we've pioneered at Yada is a product called the Solar Leaf. It's the world's first uh, thermally regulated battery that's designed to integrate directly behind solar modules. So a lot of people liken this to the microinverter. Uh, think of the microinverter of energy storage. And our beachhead market is to focus on commercial rooftops, where we integrate directly onto racking, and the weight of our battery actually serves as a ballast weight. And uh, before people jump on the temperature bandwagon, that's our core technology. So we've patented and uh, developed a way that's now manufactured and deployed of protecting batteries against both extreme heat and extreme cold. And these are the two barriers as to why this format wouldn't work. So we're excited. We've, we've launched the product now to strategic customers. And uh, we're looking to do a full launch of the technology in 2021. It has been uh, fascinating to watch you guys as a startup hardware company on a really interesting and efficient pathway to market, uh, both from a capital perspective and a team, relatively small team, uh, comparatively small uh, capex in terms of how much it took to get your product into market, which is another remarkable. Story, perhaps we'll have a chance to chat about. Before we do, we'll talk about a company that has has no lack of uh, of bandwidth on the capital side. SunGrow Power is one of the largest inverter manufacturers in the world. With uh, Zach, what was it? Over a hundred gigawatts deployed? Is that right? Yeah, right. Uh, we, we, we just celebrated a hundred gigawatts of delivered product. So it's a huge milestone. It's the first time that's been achieved by any of the inverter manufacturers. So. Yeah, fantastic. And I remember that SunGrow was one of the early companies that I became aware of that was bundling storage um, from an inverter manufacturer perspective. A lot of uh, innovation for inverter companies uh, has been around how to bundle the rest of the balance of the system, make it easy, and sort of package that insurance product in the way of a, of a warranty. SunGrow has innovated as one of the early and strongest global manufacturers to really bundle storage into their product. We're excited to have uh, SunGrow uh, not only uh, helping bring this to the world, but also uh, explain a little bit more, which we'll get into depth on about the work that you guys are doing with bringing energy storage to both large and, uh, and CNI scale projects that you guys are working on. And last, but certainly not least, we'll bring in Merrick Kubik. Merrick is a 30 under 30 Forbes list winner for uh, innovating on, uh, on business models. Uh, and that is because he's been a contributor largely to the launch of 
the Fluence platform, namely in the UK and Irish markets. Merrick is the director of the UK, Ireland, let's see if I get this right, and Middle East and Africa markets. Is that right, Merrick? Yeah, it was, it was pretty good, Ingo. Um, hi, good good afternoon, I guess, to everyone in the US. I'm, I think they're the only European calling in. Um, so it's a nice dark evening out in front of me. So apologies for this sort of more ghastly globe, but uh, great to join you. Absolutely, and great to have you here. We'll talk a little bit in a, in a moment about some of the work that you guys have all been doing uh, in integrating storage at the utility level and what the uh, what the drivers are for storage to be uh, to be added into um, lots of different projects. So, an esteemed panel here, as I mentioned, looking at manufacturing, utility scale integration, CNI integration, and even microgrids. Uh, I'd love to, uh, as a as a starting off point uh, for the panel, just get a feel for how do you see business models being um, being transformed by the introduction of energy storage? We've got a number of folks uh, who have been involved hands-on with the development of solar projects and other types of clean energy projects since long before storage was, uh, was a household uh, capability or a household name, as it were, for, for solar projects. So I'd like to start with you, Zach. You've been one of the, uh, I'll, I'll say, the OGs in the solar space, uh, having worked at a number of uh, leading manufacturers. What do you think is the tip of the spear for us uh, around innovation with energy storage, and how is it forcing uh, the industry to modify business models? Um, boy, that, that, that's a very large question. Maybe I'll attack a few aspects of it. I mean, when it comes to the utility scale plants in North America, uh, we see very few plants that aren't evaluating storage as part of the project. So anything that's really 2021 and beyond has some kind of storage analysis, um, has already approved storage. So it's in our everyday lives at, at Sunbrow in, in North America. It's it's everyday situation where we talk about how, how to structure, how to architect the system, uh, what's the most cost-effective way um, to deploy different architectures, and how will they affect the PPA or the developer, the, the money side of the project. That started maybe a year or two ago, um, and it's just gained more speed uh, as we go on. As far as the innovation goes, uh, we're really focused on lowering the cost of storage, whether it be sourcing uh, the battery or um, eliminating uh, different components within the system, um, making the overall system just more cost effective. As you reach different thresholds on the, on the cost basis, you enable more and more projects and more and more different um, PPA structures and, and finance structures. Uh, so uh, we're trying to get the basically the projects to pencil. Uh, Marek, uh, tell us about the European market for energy storage. How is it differing from the U.S. market from what you know? Sure. So uh, I guess one of the, there's a couple of interesting trends. So from, from a utility scale perspective and for um, sort of front of meter storage, there's there's maybe two two different trends that are emerging that we're seeing. One particularly interesting is the Irish market at the moment. Um, so Ireland is really a leading market globally for renewable penetration. It has a very high wind resource. Uh, they're already about you know approaching forty percent of uh, electricity being produced from from wind. 
And the aim is to get to 70% by 2030, legally sort of binding uh, target that's written into, into Irish law. And to get to 70% variable renewable generation in just under 10 years, it's a huge growth, growth path. And if you look at that being an average over the year, it means during any instantaneous moment on the uh, electricity grid, the, the need is actually going to be to have up to 95% of electricity coming from from wind, from solar, from essentially non-synchronous sources. And that historically has been sort of thought of as impossible. So one of the things that, that's really being driven, I'd say, by need, by market, which is a forebearer of many other markets around the world, is that need to get towards 100% renewable energy. And in order to get to 95% in, in real time, uh, there are various things that you need to do for grid stability. And one of the things that we've we've been able to demonstrate with some of the projects that Fluence has uh, delivered for uh, for customers in the Irish market, the first um, super fast responding batteries in the world is that we can respond in hundreds of milliseconds. So 10 to, uh, you know, maybe even 100 times faster than um, you would traditionally have resources responding to balance the grid and maintain stability on the grid without necessarily needing the fossil fuel power plants to provide the traditional stability the inertia to, to maintain the grid so that's a really big and interesting one um and the second which maybe we'll come back to because i don't want to hog the, the time on the upfront is around actually the grid the infrastructure uh, transmission network distribution network and how you accommodate renewables on the grid um, and particularly using storage instead of transmission lines to bolster the grid um so virtual transmission lines. So it's also a really interesting evolution of um, business models and taking energy storage into a sector and replacing a technology that you wouldn't traditionally think you could replace, like a pole, pole and wire alternative. I'm really fascinated by the ways that each of you are, uh, are actually helping to challenge the status quo in the industry, or rather the industries where, uh, in which you participate. Jacqueline, one of the ways that I've seen Amoresco grow, as you rightly mentioned in the beginning, you all started out as an ESCO, an energy service company, where by and large you were offering energy savings, looking at energy efficiency. How's the work that you all are engaged in at Amoresco changed over the last uh, one to two years as we've seen energy storage costs plummet? Uh, you've no notably become a leader in microgrids, and, and microgrids, I think, are an area that many folks don't understand. What are you seeing as, as challenges to customers' needs that energy storage is offering solutions to? Nico, you're absolutely right. Amoresco has a solid history We've uh, successfully completing energy savings and renewable projects with, you know, in, as in our prior role as an ESCO um, and now as a, a renewable generation developer. Um, you know, for federal and state and local governments, healthcare, educational institutions, housing authorities, commercial and industrial uh, customers. You know, I personally have um, a lot of passion for energy storage. I'm in my second term on the ESA board, on the executive board, in fact. So I see that energy storage has many use cases that can be applied to many of the customers that I just listed that are Amoresco's traditional customer base. Um, whether it's, you know, a, a local government deferring some type of transmission and, you know, or distribution charge or a capacity charge or, a, you know, a hospital deferring, lowering their electric bill. But you are right. I find the microgrid use case really cool right now. I do live in California, so resiliency is 
really important. And um, energy savings is, is uh, viable because of the rate structure here. So um, Amoresco has implemented some cool microgrids with the federal government. One in particular that I love to talk about is Paris Island, where the energy storage resource is used for multiple purposes. So, I mean, it, it, it provides the assistance to, you know, isolate from the grid, and then it can provide re reactive power. It can, you know, provide backup generation for the CHP that, that's serving critical load at the uh, marine base. Um, and it can load follow, so it's it's a cool it's a cool demonstration of of all the things that 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 one battery can do. And I'm not just you know a battery fan; I like energy storage um, in general. But in this instance, it's a battery. Um, so so the idea is to take those experiences that have been sec successful from a technology perspective, and then translate them into other use cases and to other of the Amoresco you know types of clients. And um, we just are starting a project up in Humboldt County at a wastewater treatment plant where we're putting solar in storage and the storage, you know, really is providing resiliency. But the goal is to show some form of cost savings. I mean, we want our customers to ultimately be budget neutral and show savings and obviously an emphasis on sustainability and carbon reduction. So hope that helps. Yeah, it does. You mentioned cost savings. And one of the things that I think about, and, I, and we often hear, certainly as I've been in sales uh, like like Zach and Omid on the hardware side, I hear a lot of developers like Amoresco use the phrase um, component or partner agnostic. Uh, that seems to me like, you know, it's an open, uh, an open opportunity for a developer to say, well, we'll work with whoever we like. Uh, but it also, in my in my experience, sometimes leads to this idea of bespoke engineering. Uh, so I want, from a cost saving perspective, Jacqueline, how, and I'd love to hear thoughts from the rest of the team as well, uh, how, how are we seeing cost savings really delivered on the storage side? I think that, that this idea of cost savings has been... A bit of a, um, a bit of a hard one to answer for storage for the last five years because storage has been so expensive. So I'd love to hear you, Jackie, and then uh, Omid. I know that you guys are really thinking around cost savings as well for your clients to try and deliver the product. And welcome the rest of the panel to chime in. I think with storage, it is a little bit more complex, and so the answer is going to differ depending on the on the use case or the client or what it is we're trying to do. But um, I like the idea of being, you know, agnostic when it comes to who and how we package a solution for our customers. We can find local um, support often. Um, we can find the lowest cost. We can find the, you know, the strongest warranty. We can find what works for that particular um, situation. And, and I think that's an advantage. Some might disagree, but for, for us, it seems to work. Um, but in, you're right, though. I, I still have to say, you know, making the, the storage resource always pencil, it's going to depend on what you value. So, I mean, there are certain places where a demand charge reduction is going to make a lot more sense than others. But some clients might value sustainability and resiliency, and maybe those don't have an actual dollar amount, you know, uh, that we can quantify in, an, in a normal situation yet. That's coming because it's definitely coming. We're seeing new proceedings and, you know, new ways of, of evaluating the advantages of that resiliency and sustainability. So it's it's a work in progress. And, you know, obviously we want, we're, we're hoping that we'll get eventually an ITC for energy storage, you know, not just paired with solar, but for standalone storage as well. 
Um, and, and we're looking at a lot of really neat incentives throughout the country in the United States to, um, you know, to help bridge that gap. Because really, the, the, a lot of the value proposition of energy storage is not quantifiable yet. So um, we, we try to plug into those incentives and, and make a project work. Omidia and I have had discussions around ways that you guys are sort of helping reshape the, the economic model or the argument around whether or not storage makes sense. And I think that we have, you know, we've seen this in other, with other um, components that make up the balance of system of a renewable energy project, uh, which is not just talking directly to the cost, but talking to the added value of, uh, of, of a project, either through expansion of the project, ability to improve interconnection, et cetera. How are you seeing the dialogue with clients around ways that uh, rooftop energy storage, in the case of what you guys are doing, can amplify or um, be complementary to a solar project? And uh, what other benefits, ancillary benefits, do they see other than just the ability to, to store energy? Yeah, so I wanted to uh, back up a little bit and talk about your first question that you asked was about where energy storage is today. I liken everyone to this ratio. If you think of energy and solar storage as the computer and the internet, we're kind of at that right at that cusp where we're figuring out what the internet is, right? We're just now starting to figure out what energy storage really means. And we're probably the next phase will be our dot-com dot bubble for energy storage. And then from there, you're going to see all kinds of business models that really can take the full value of what energy storage can do, right? There's a wheel of 21 different services. I would say energy storage pencils out today. It's just at what increment. What Yada brings to the table is we make it pencil out at any increment. Um, for a lot of other players, we found this very interesting fact uh, in the California market, for example, 92% of the market for commercial solar is less than 500 kW systems of PV, but there's only a 3% energy storage attachment rate. And we asked ourselves, well, why is that? And the reason is that there's a fixed cost to energy storage. Where a 30 kilowatt hour system could really pencil out and make a huge impact for that customer on their demand charge reduction, no one... Uh, wants to do that system because no one can make money because they have the same fixed costs and permitting and designing and customer acquisition, whether they do a megawatt hour system or a 50 kilowatt hour system. And it's kind of leaving this whole void in the marketplace. And you would argue that all the players that are doing energy storage right now are kind of focused on 8% of the market. They're all competing against each other for 8% of the market. And that's where we really come in. And uh, I've got our product here, which is really easy to show you. This is the solar leaf. And it's literally the size of a large briefcase and it integrates. See, let's see you do that, Merrick. <laughs> <laughs> I was thinking where I could, uh, yeah, where I could bring in a 40 foot container or something. Yeah. <laughs> well, exactly. Right. We were talking to one customer who said, I already know where I'm going to go uh, on the building. I always end up having to go next to the trash cans. Right. And uh, another comment he made is when you're putting energy storage on the ground, everyone's got an opinion. When you put it on the roof, there's very few stakeholders that care how it looks, right? And so we really see this format. I mean, we're not trying to compete with the large-scale systems, right? We really see this format as enabling more storage and really opening up this marketplace uh, for the customers who would have never considered storage. And the other really unique thing that, that Yada brings to the table is you can, do, you can have a 300 kW array, which is roughly 900 solar panels, and you can do 20 units and do 20 kilowatt hours of storage. And the economics around that 20 kilowatts of storage can actually pencil out in less than two years. So it brings an incremental approach to energy storage that the marketplace currently doesn't have. And uh, we think that's a game changer. And uh, we're very excited. 
And uh, you also talked about the other benefits. We've actually created a whole new value um, around energy, around our product, which is the ability to increase DCPV without having to upgrade interconnection. Because now that you have storage on the DC side, um, you can actually increase the amount of PV on an application without having to upgrade that inter interconnection point. Hey, for my commercial solar warriors out there, do you sometimes feel like prospects are treating you like a dollar per watt commodity? Instead of a race to the bottom, why not add more value to your proposals by including DemandX load flexibility software from Extensible Energy? You can use intelligent AI software to monitor solar production and shift the usage patterns of HVAC and other flexible loads. The result is increased savings on energy charges, demand charges, time of use charges, and that makes you and your proposal stand out from the crowd. Who doesn't want that? You can learn all about DemandX and how you can include load flexibility software as part of your proposals at extensibleenergy.com forward slash suncast. And as a bonus, you'll get free load flexibility analysis, sales training, and info on how you can even white label DemandX for your solar company. So go ahead, stand out with DemandX from Extensible Energy. You know, one of the things that to the conversation we were having with Jacqueline around um, microgrids, I, I think about this topic of scalability. In fact, Merrick, you and I talked about scalability, and it's one of the things that you are thinking a lot about with, uh, with regards to how Fluence integrates and helps utilities. I wonder if you would have any contribution there uh, from the utility perspective. Yeah, it, it was really interesting follow on actually from, from what Jackie was saying, because Fluence is a big believer in the, the how do you describe it, technology agnostic open architecture approach. Um, we, we quite deliberately haven't gone down a vertical integration route, um, like a, you know, a Tesla route where you make the batteries, you put everything together in-house. We're quite deliberately uh, CapEx light and really the opposite of that, where uh, you design the architecture and the software and are able to plug in um, from uh, you know, a handful of large-scale key suppliers, different chemistries, different technologies, different form factors. So there's a lot more uh, flexibility to meet a specific project need. Um, but it's exactly right. The challenge that you have there is how you meld that with simplicity and scalability. Um, because if you have to custom engineer every project differently, that that uh, takes a huge amount of effort. And it, it is you know, arguably possible to do at large scale because you're talking about a smaller number of projects. But Fluence is now... Um, well over 100 uh, utility scale projects, nearly two gigawatts of projects around the world, all battery energy storage. So very significant volumes and each of those take very different um, form factors. So we've thought a lot about how you design that form factor so that you can plug in different technologies, particularly from an electrochemistry side of things. It's interesting because it's not really being driven by stationary storage at all. We're, uh, we're taking advantage of what's being developed for the automotive space. Um, so it requires some uh, creative thinking, but if you have a building block that you can customize to different uh, different applications, then that gives you a lot of versatility to address whatever application it is, whether it's a frequency regulation or long duration for peak shifting, DC couple for uh, for storage. You start from that same fundamental block. So that, at a high level, that's that's how we sort of think about it and how we approach it. Zach, you know, one of the things that stands out uh, from a hardware perspective, especially for a, a major global hardware manufacturer like SunGrow, a, a lot of us think about energy storage uh, on the solar side 
from you know from Merrick's perspective or from maybe Sunrun's perspective at the uh, you know putting it in a closet in a residential home I'd love to hear uh, how SunGrow is uh, considering the, the packaging of storage and the way that you are helping the CNI market as well I know that you guys are uh, if not the first at least and uh, larger in the U.S., probably on your way at first, largest supplier of inverters. So are you seeing a big demand or a pull through from uh, that middle market around storage? Yeah, and, and absolutely. Um, probably not as much activities um, as we see on the utility scale side of things. You know, the utility scale market is five times as large as the CNI market here in the U.S., so naturally that you know that um that pulls a lot of our resources but um what we've really focused on is enabling storage with our standard product catalog so um we just launched a new 250 kilowatt string inverter which is really focused for that small utility uh commercial um type of uh install that has a dc port that's built into it so you could add storage it's a string inverter, so it's a wall hanger. It has uh, the built-in combiner box. And so really it's about putting things like that together. Previously, uh, to integrate storage with a string inverter, um, you know, it would have to be AC coupled, which shoehorns you into certain business models. So to be able to offer those architectures out of the box with no cost adders is a big deal. Our central inverters also have the same capability. So what you're seeing is it has the normal solar um, master DC combiner, but inside that combiner, it also has all of the storage ports. So you can add up to, to one or, or, or two to one storage uh, for the nameplate of your solar. Um, and so those products are the identical cost of what the products you were buying last year, uh, but they have these ports and these capabilities they have all the built-in controls. They have all of the standards and the, the UL certifications it requires to install. So I think that's really kicking things loose. Uh, previously, a lot of the storage activities were structured around, uh, you know, I'm not trying to uh, be negative here, but more boutique solutions. So you would buy a DC to DC converter from one supplier you'd buy an AC to DC converter from another supplier. You would buy the software package maybe from a third supplier or develop that yourself and really put that solution together. Now you can get products off the shelf that have those capabilities built in um, and you know have the service infrastructure, have the bankability, uh, everything you need. Yeah, it's interesting and fascinating uh, to think how the large, sort of from the vantage point of a large manufacturer, uh, you guys are able to, from SunGrow's perspective, respond to this dick disaggregation in the market uh, and sort of the disparate nature that really makes it uh, heretofore very difficult to integrate storage, right? I see uh, Jacqueline and Merrick shaking their uh, nodding here along with us. Merrick, I would invite you, actually, you had a question uh, earlier that we were discussing uh, around the same topic. I'd invite you to ask that question over to Zach, if you would. Yeah, no, sure. Happy to. Um, Zach, I was very curious, um, and it might be a naive question because I know the, the inverter market less less well, but having the experience that you do and the vantage point you do over both uh, the solar inverter market and the storage inverter market, 
would you say that they are are different in their maturity and therefore in how you would approach them either from a design products uh distribution marketing perspective or is it pretty you know similar it's the same fundamental technology just packaged in a different way you know we have a myriad of products we have um we have residential products um and residential storage products we have the cni space uh as well as the utility space so uh you have to be specific on kind of which of the technologies but i think what you're seeing is you used to have to bolt a bunch of legos together to make your sort of building block and now you're getting all the latest generation products that are releasing this year all have those capabilities built into the standard product. So you don't have the duplication of hardware. You don't have the duplication of installation and maintenance and cost. Um, you know, it's one control system that controls an inverter. Why can't that control a battery? Uh, why can't all the inverters be bi-directional power flow? Uh, so I think that's really what we see is the maturity in that all these technologies somewhat existed, but you just couldn't get them in one package. So, so does that mean in terms of how it's put together, it's essentially the unlocking model of like all the functionality is there in the product that you buy, but depending on which package you, you take, some of the features are enabled and some of them are not. Is that essentially how it works? So basically, even if you're buying a one directional inverter, it has two directional capability. You just have to pay to, to unlock that capability. Exactly. Exactly. The previous generations of products didn't have those capabilities. Um, and so they would have to be retrofitted. You'd have to add boxes um, and fusing and protection devices. But now you can get it all in one package and change firmware settings, change, you know, uh, to change uh, capabilities. Is it a similar approach in terms of functionality you'd be taking, or is there a very specific sort of, you know, uh, hardware setup that you're you're looking at for a specific application? Well, I think it fits uh, very much in line with what Zach's describing here, in the sense that you need to remove redundancy out of the system, right? And in the past, all we had was AC coupling architectures, which were simple to install, but had a lot of redundancy occurring. You know, when you're using the battery storage, you're going AC to DC twice. And we see a lot of movement now towards more integrated products. And the market, you talk to any developer, they want they want one throat to choke, right? They hate having to work with a whole bunch of different suppliers uh, for different components to build the system because what happens when something goes wrong is everyone starts pointing fingers uh, in the other direction. So whether it's with an string inverter or, or with energy storage, what you see in the marketplace is more of a movement to integrate and have one product offering. And you see this happening. So we think there's going to be some consolidation that's going to happen in the marketplace over time. And then for us at Yada, we, you know, our core focus is energy storage, the product itself. Um, we're not building in our own inverter system. We're going to integrate with some very strategic partners uh, in that, on that front. So, for example, Zach's inverter could very well work with the solar relief uh, with some some minor adjustments. Okay. I'm so that around gonna make, oh, I was just going to comment that as a developer, it's mind-blowing how the technology advances are happening so quickly. When um, Zach was talking about, you know, what's happened in his space with the inverters, it, it is really hard to wrap your arms around everything that's changing, you know, the different solutions that are available. And, um, Omid, I would agree with you that, it would be a lot easier if it was just one nice integrated solution, but it's, it's great that it's evolving. And, and I'm glad that, um, you know, I can, I'm, I'm, I'm 
hearing from you what some of these changes are and, and that I can stay on top of it. And I, I think there's even a question um, from the audience about whether there's a process or standard assessment in place for our companies to evaluate solutions um, for sustainability or carbon footprints to manufacture our solutions. So I don't know if somebody wants to take that question. I'll just take it real quick. Um, so when, we just, this, when we developed this technology, we actually worked very hard to design it in a way where uh, it's a cradle-to-cradle approach. Uh, we designed all the components, the thermal technology, in a way that at the end of its life cycle, it can easily be taken apart and recycled. Um, and also down to our cell selection, right? There are um, many less expensive sales in the market that you can buy, but for us, it's uh, we tried to find a cell supplier that actually could give us the longest duration, the longest ELCO for product offering. The last thing you want is an energy storage solution that ends up in a landfill after three, four years. And so every, sustainability not only drives our product uh, engineering decisions, it drives very, very much the core focus of what we're trying to do. No, I was going to say at Amoresco, that's one of the categories where we will show what the carbon savings are. So that certainly is one area. I mean, we'll show water savings, carbon savings, you know, dollar savings. So we try to outline, you know, those different categories and have a, a, a way to measure those, those savings. Yeah, I, I was going to say it's a similar thing from we look at it, yes, and we do in a, in a few different ways how this comes across to clients. So the, the, the stats that are quite interesting on this now that Influence has been, I think the first projects uh, that we deployed are about 12 years ago or so. So there's actually a very long track record for some of these projects. And those first ones are still in operation. So they're still in their first life, so to speak. But cumulatively, they've now delivered nearly seven terawatt hours of, of equivalent service. So if you put that in, you know, in gas peak of fleet terms, it's a pretty, pretty sizable peak, um, peak of fleet of emissions avoided, granted providing very different services, different duty cycles. But um, so if you look at the the indirect of that, we're a mission driven company in terms of, of what we're doing, we're aiming to transform the way we power the world, essentially, and move it towards a, a, you know, a completely sustainable system. Um, we do look at sustainability throughout the, the supply chain. The key part of that is obviously the, the batteries. And we look at, well, from it's a similar sort of thing, cradle to, to grave, the recyclability point. And I think there are a lot of mistruths and um, uh, various things out there on the internet about lithium-ion batteries and their recyclability. It's, it's extremely high. Um, it's just mostly done in, in Asia, particularly in China. And it's less established in Europe and in the in the US. And the same on the upstream side of things from a you know supply chain sustainability standpoint. Uh, depending on the chemistry, uh, you have some that, for instance, don't use cobalt, some that do. If they do, making sure that that's audited, you know, uh, tracked properly uh, from a, a you know cobalt uh, sustainability perspective. Um, so it, it factors in a myriad of ways. Uh, in terms of client-facing sides of that, it usually does come up. Um, depending on the type of client, uh, most of them are doing storage for you know similar reasons uh, to us because they they want to make a meaningful difference in the company impact. So it, it, it's often a cut question that does come up. Um, for utilities, it's probably only second to safety, um, and safety is you know one of the top topics that they want to talk about, which is also very valid as well. You know, Merrick, you mentioned earlier, uh, almost in passing that you guys, uh, in particular when dealing with utilities, offer uh, an, an additional 
benefit, and it's one that I was unfamiliar with prior to engaging with you in a conversation around how Fluence is thinking about integration of, of batteries, and that is this idea of virtual transmission. We got, uh, in fact, a question from the audience uh, wanting to follow up with you on that. Can you expound a little bit on what it means to have virtual transmission, how that works uh, from a battery perspective? Sure. So I'll pick a few examples because it's the best way of illustrating this. this is happening already. So we have projects that are doing this sort of thing in the US and Australia already. But in Europe, particularly, both the UK and Germany uh, are coming out with something similar and there is something happening in, in France. Um, so fundamental level, Germany is a great example of this. A lot of wind in the north, a lot of demand in the south, and transmission infrastructure in between the two, which uh, is, is there, and it's very difficult to change or, or increase the capacity of. So you have a bottleneck, which is costing billions of dollars um, to resolve because you have to dispatch down the wind in the north and bring on generation that's not economic in the south of Germany, or you have to pay to power through Poland or you know adjacent markets. So this is an expensive problem in the billions uh, being spent every year. And as such, the German regulators have approved special virtual transmission projects, basically building batteries to act as basically backup power to provide the contingency power on the power lines instead of having to leave a line redundant and unused, which is currently what happens. And by doing that, you use the same infrastructure that's already there but at its sort of full potential so that if one line goes down, you have a battery that basically kicks in with a relay system and provides the lost power. So from a stability perspective, from a reliability perspective, you're no worse off, but you've essentially unclogged some of that, that jammed system. And there's different ways of how you package that, but that's fundamentally the idea uh, that the UK is looking at implementing as well with all of the wind in Scotland and all of the demand in the south near London. So it's happening in a few different ways in a few different places, various regulatory barriers to, to overcome, but it's a really neat solution and actually a huge potential market for, for helping integrate renewables and getting towards 100%, which is I think, what most of us want to, want to see. It's fascinating. It makes me think about the high penetration of wind in the Oaxaca area of Mexico, as well on the state side with Texas, so many disparate markets and, and the, the way that power is being curtailed. Uh, it also makes me think about various interconnection points in other places in Latin America, like uh, the northern part of Chile and, and the big population centers of southern Chile. Another element that is often talked about, and, we, and I don't see a, a lot around the discourse in the public view, is the idea of transactive power. We got a question from the audience uh, specifically around transactive power. Everyone talks about transactive power, but are there actual markets where it's starting to take place? What are the mechanisms that are empowering it? The question specifically was for Amoresco and Jacqueline, uh, given that you're working on microgrids, how are you engaged in transactive power? And then I have a follow-on question that I'm curious about from an IPP perspective. So I, I don't want to be a downer on transactive power. I love the concept and I think people should pay for whatever it costs, but I don't see that it's here yet. And and certainly I'm not an expert in everything. You know, I, I know what I know and I know what I don't know. I have followed the transactive power discussions over the years and I just don't I just don't think it's down at that retail level yet. So we are working on other ways to, to, you know, monetize and show cost savings. We have different structures, you know, that we implement, whether it's a PPA or, a, you know, an energy performance contract, um, EPC. We, we're probably much more traditional in that regard. I guess you could say, you know, maybe in New York with, with the VEDER, there is some 
concept of, of you know, showing what the actual costs are through that um, program. Um, but I wouldn't say that's transactive power yet. I, I don't know, Nico, am I interpreting the question correctly? Because if I'm not, please put me on the right direction because there's a lot of stuff going on up here. Yeah, the question I think is around, <laughs> and I think you are, um, the, the question was around whether or not MRS was getting transactive power as a component of the microgrid engagement. Not yet, uh, only in the sense that if you can show, um, if, if you can do a microgrid where you're showing some type of bill savings and also providing sustainability, I wouldn't really say it's transacted power, but it's all how you, I guess, how you define that that term. So I hope I can follow up with whoever asked the question, because I would love to explain some of the different contracting mechanisms that we've used for these cases. Nico, if I, if I can just jump in, like that, I think refers back to my analogy. The solar and storage is still at like the computer level. Transactive power is when we get to the internet level of it, right? And I think it's coming. It's just a matter of utilities and how we form different business models around how energy storage can be monetized. I think the audience asked, you know, are there tradable commodities that happen for energy storage? And that's, I think when those types of mechanisms happen, that's when you'll see energy storage just go, you know, go real big. But transactive power has always existed with solar and storage. It's called net metering. It's just done through a meter, right? Uh, back when I installed my solar PV system almost 12 years ago, I had net metering and I was basically offsetting and selling my kilowatt hours to my neighbors, but through the utility, right? It's a simple function of utility and regulation. Um, and I think one thing that I think of recently with what happened with what's happened with COVID, I think there's going to be a lot of changes that happen with utilities and rates, schedules, and uh, there has to be, right? Utilities make a bulk of their revenue from commercial building. And all of a sudden, we shifted all of this demand from commercial buildings to residential, which has not ever been a moneymaker for utilities. It's just been a supply, right? And so what's going to happen is utilities are going to come back and have to increase rates. And the more that they increase rates, the more it's going to drive businesses to then further consider solar storage. Um, and so then I think that's going to open up more opportunities for different types of uh, market opportunities. But, but I, I agree with Jacqueline in some ways, too. It's not the hype that some people make it out to be with blockchain and all that stuff. Yeah, yeah, that's kind of what I was. I, thank you for that. Yeah, I, I appreciate that. But I'm reading is what throws you off. <laughs> Yeah, no, no, I'm reading your the question now, and I'm, I agree with what you said. And I, as I read the, the question, um, you know, as a tradable commodity, I do think we are seeing that um, in some regards because energy suppliers are now taking, you know, instead of taking a short-term position and, and to serve their load, right, in, in states where there's competitive supply, um, retail supply, or even in California where you have community choice aggregation, you know, even the CCAs are looking, okay, well, I should take a longer term position. And that way, you know, they're kind of hedging what they would have to rely on the wholesale market for. So, and I, and I think that the concept of building storage, you know, to, to, to even just sell that, those ancillary services, you know, so that those load serving entities can hedge their supply is not, it, that's not far off. That's probably already, I think that is being done. So I, I know there's definitely some companies doing that throughout the U.S. It ties into what I think will be our final question as we round out uh, the session here. You know, when we teed up this session as a component of the, of the summit, <clears throat> one of the things that, from an innovation perspective, I'm thinking about are not, not what are the business models that we currently enjoy, but what are the business models that will be enabled that we'll be capable of thinking through once storage achieves the kind of scale that we all believe 
that it will. I'd love to kind of go around the horn here and hear your thoughts on that. We'll start with you, Merrick, but are there new business models that are on the horizon that once once we reach some unknown uh, point, we will be able to enjoy because of uh, storage? And maybe uh, as you answer that question, what are the regulatory hurdles that prevent us from getting there now? A, a lot of a lot of talk talk and thought is around the idea of 100% renewable penetration and that batteries are going to really be the key to unlocking that. So I'd love to hear from you. We'll start with you, Merrick. How do we unlock new business models and what are the hurdles to get there? It's a big topic to, to unpack, but I think there's, there's two things. So one, it's not necessarily about scale because as storage gets cheaper um, with, with scale, you can do more more things that that's pretty obvious and it's cheaper to do them so there'll be lower barriers to entry so for instance places where we're already seeing that solar plus storage makes sense like hawaii having just solar and, and storage and basically using um the, the batteries to deliver solar at night makes sense there because fuel costs are high we're we're there in the us to an extent but that's because of the investment tax credit but as as the scale goes uh, either incentives or specific structures fall away and it becomes more commonplace everywhere but equally, that's never going to get you fully there. It, the, there's a few different ways of, of unpacking this because people talk about long duration storage. And to me, lithium mine is long duration storage already. It can do four hours. It can do six hours competitively. As costs fall, it can do eight hours. Maybe it can do 10, 12. Who knows? It's not going to ever be weeks of storage competitively. Um, and to get to full 100% renewables, we do need weekly and seasonal storage as well. But you can get about 80% renewables uh, on a on an annual basis with just daily storage, and that's a huge market in itself. So for to take that alone in the UK, that's about 39 gigawatts of of storage that's needed. So really, it's not about the scale. I would say it's around the new things we discover we need to solve. Um, as we go along the path. So I started with Ireland and I'm going to finish with Ireland. To get to near 100% real-time renewables, you need digital inertia. You need batteries to be able to deliver effectively inertia when there is no synchronous generation on the grid. And we've shown that they can and that actually, um, despite them not having spinning parts, they're better at providing it because they respond so quickly that they start picking up the frequency before it's hit bottom and that, by definition, is what inertia is there for on the grid. So we're discovering that. We're at the sort of cusps of it in some markets. But who knows what we need to discover after that to keep going? I'll chime in there that uh, while uh, we've more, more or less focused around solar and how we can augment solar with energy storage and with batteries as a storage technology, um, in the broader context of clean energy, uh, we can't leave out our big brother hydro which is the original long duration storage clean energy capacity right <laughs> um yeah for, for those who are watching thinking gosh these guys are only talking about batteries and solar um i i wonder if you guys might if if the other panelists might have uh something to to chime in on there around future business models what the regulatory hurdles uh, are and and thank you merrick for uh the contribution of so many different uh buzzwords like virtual transmission uh, and digital inertia that I haven't thought about. <laughs> you hand out bingo cards at the next one. I'll, I'll see if I can hit the wall. So, Nico, I envision a world where energy storage is on a level playing field with other technologies. And we're starting to see progress, you know, with 841 at FERC and the implementation. 
But right now, the system benefits associated with energy storage are not quantified. And that's a problem. When you put energy storage on the grill grid, you're really operating everything much more efficiently. Therefore, you know, reducing your the carbon footprint, your, you know, your capacity prices are coming down. I mean, it's it's good for everybody, but those those types of benefits are not yet monetized. So that's that's one challenge. I would love that to be overcome. The, the second the second piece is that when you have um, multiple jurisdictions, you know, a state jurisdiction and a federal jurisdiction, it, it creates confusion about you know how you can implement that storage resource. So if you want to do say a non-wire alternative, it becomes much more complicated because you're crossing into maybe a federal jurisdiction and a state jurisdiction. And those rules are being refined and worked out and we're seeing tremendous progress in that arena so that you really can value stack all those different benefits of energy storage. So I imagine a place when those corrections are made and you know energy storage will be on a level playing field and can be quantified for the value it's actually providing. I think it's as simple as leasing. When you have technologies that become more advanced and less, uh, less costly, you can have financial institutions that can lease the equipment. That equipment can then generate kilowatt hours, and you're then therefore circumventing a lot of regulation that traditional utilities have to fall under, right? Uh, so I think, I think progressive utilities will get into the business of leasing solar storage equipment um, and find unique ways. And so, in fact, some already are. Uh, you look at some of the bigger players in energy storage, they're actually backed by utility companies, just not within their own territories. They're trying to form business models outside of their own territories. So uh, that's my two cents. Fantastic. Well, as we wrap up, I'd love to hear any parting thoughts from you all as, uh, as our panelists around the ways that energy storage is, in fact, uh, enabling growth of renewables. And um, I'll just say from the outset, I'm really grateful to hear from such a diverse and thoughtful uh, group of folks who are, who are looking at different places in the marketplace. Uh, we didn't have anyone from electric vehicles uh, to, to discuss how obviously all these batteries are sitting in cars dispersed around uh, our energy internet. Uh, but as we think about uh, this topic of, of storage and innovation, uh, I'd love to, or I'd wrap up rather this topic, I'd love to start with, uh, with you, Zach, and give you all a chance to give some parting thoughts uh, to the audience. Yeah, I mean, uh, we've already seen that storage is, is already a part of every, every solar system uh, that's planned for the future in some, some level. So, you know, I, I think it's here. It's just uh, to tack on to what uh, Jackie said, it's been difficult to quantify it. Uh, I'd really like to see some more innovation on the modeling side so you can look at different DC to AC ratios, different architectures like DC coupled, AC coupled, or maybe both, um, and find that inflection point where at that location uh, you can generate a good return. And if you can generate a good return, there'll be lots more projects. I, I think we're doing everything we can to enable cost-effective solutions but where I'd like to see the market really is open up on the modeling side so we can do more analysis and look at interconnects differently, look at existing assets differently, look at um, you know all the different markets uh, differently. Um, right now, I think uh, we're all stuck in our own modeling pools and we're using some off-the-shelf stuff. 
And really, I, I think that's where the innovation needs to happen next if we're going to enable further um, deployments. Omid, how about you? Yeah, um, final thoughts. I think I agree with what, what Zach is saying, and I think what Jacqueline echoed. There's a lot, a lot of work to be done on how we value and monetize energy storage. Um, uh, I think for us, it's, it's trying to get it into the hands of the solar developers, the regional solar developers that have been engaged with customers for so long and know how to do that best. I think that's one of the first keys is to create a simplified product for them. And uh, I'd like to finish off with we're borrowing something from local restaurants. If you buy a solar leaf today, you also get a, a yacht or roll. Uh, <laughs> so, so Jacqueline, Mark, I expect some POs from you after this. I hope so. I love it. I love learning about your product. So thank you. That is fantastic. Um, I, I, my parting thoughts are thank you very much, Nico, for the opportunity. Um, I think energy storage is at a, another turning point where it's just going to be part of everybody's uh, tool in the tool shed. I think we're, we're just about there. Fantastic. And you, Merrick? Yeah, I don't think there's much to add either. It's been fun. Thanks, uh, thanks, Nico, for organizing. Uh, thanks to the other panelists. It's been great hearing your your thoughts as well. I found myself nodding along quite a bit, which is which is good. Um, so uh, yeah, uh, uh, nothing, nothing further to add. All right, that's a wrap on today's conversation, Solar Warriors. But I do hope that you'll check out the other Two for Tuesday episodes and let me know what you think of these shorter format discussions. You want more like this? You can find more than 200 episodes, resources, highlights from the discussions, along with social media links to each guest episode, book recommendations, and so much more over on the blog at mysuncast.com. And that's also where you'll find other ways to engage with the Suncast tribe, like subscribing to our weekly emails or even joining the exclusive inner circle we affectionately refer to as the Guild. If you're on Spotify or iTunes, I so appreciate your rating and review so that others can also find Suncast more easily. A special thank you to our sponsors who help make this podcast possible. You can learn more about them at mysuncast.com forward slash sponsor. Follow the links there for any offers we've discussed here today. Remember, you are what you listen to. Thanks again for showing up, Solar Warrior. It's half the battle. <laughs>